Hi and welcome to the Digital Accessibility Podcast, sponsored by PCR Digital, who provide people-centric recruitment. Throughout this series, I'll be interviewing professionals who work within the field of accessibility to share their expertise, journeys and general thoughts on the key issues facing the industry today. My aim is to provide an in-depth look into the world of digital accessibility and the impact it has on everyone. The goal is to bridge the skills gap in the current market and inspire other people to join the movement towards a more accessible digital world. So whether you're a seasoned professional or just starting out, I hope that this platform will provide you with valuable insights and practical advice from experts and advocates in this extremely important community. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm joined by Emily Rose Yates, who is the Head of Accessibility at MIMA, a human-centred design agency with a core focus on physical and social accessibility. Emily is a wheelchair user who has had some truly inspiring achievements throughout her life, which I'm hoping we can discuss a bit more today. Uh, We've discussed digital accessibility at length on this podcast, and today we've got a slightly different episode. We're diving in to learn a little bit more about the thin line between physical, social and digital accessibility. I hope that's a a good general overview, Emily, but um, please do introduce yourself a bit more uh, for our listeners. That's great. Thank you so much and, and thank you for having me. It's really lovely to be here. Um, yep, yeah, I'm I'm Emily, a wheelchair user. You can probably tell from my accent that I'm originally from North Yorkshire, but I, I now live in Glasgow, which I absolutely love. Um, and I've been an accessibility consultant in the built environment, social and operational space for just over a decade. Um, and now, yes, very happy to be Head of Accessibility and Inclusive Design at MIMA. So I can tell you more about what we do later, I'm sure. Absolutely. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, And it was great um, meeting you very briefly, but uh, in person recently at the Disability Expo in London. Um, And we've also had a great chat previously, put the world to rights as as we like to do. Um, And I'm sure we'll do the same today. Um, Just a heads up that we're going to stick to some preset questions. This is so our audience don't sort of see us just rambling on um, and it just keep us on track a bit is that okay sounds good sounds great awesome I'm sure we'll still find a way to ramble it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you know I have done a bit of research on yourself before we first met and I learned that you were the first wheelchair user to cross the Sinai Desert which is absolutely phenomenal to hear about um, I'm sure it was an amazing and beautiful experience but at the same time there must have been so much going into that in terms of planning and effort and making making it happen. So would you mind uh, telling us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so my first experience of accessible travel, if you like. So, so I was born with cerebral palsy. I've been a wheelchair user since I was nine. And my first experience of accessible travel was when I was 16, um, I was nominated by my school to go on a trip to Southern Africa with a charity called JOLT, Journey of a Lifetime Trust. And that was with other disabled people. Um, And we went for a month long adventure doing things that I never, ever thought I'd be able to do. And it was just absolutely incredible. Learning about my capabilities when I think so often as a society, we focus on disabled people's limitations. That was really, really cool at such a young age to be able to do. 
And then I came back to the UK and uh, studied for my A-levels and a couple of years later saw a poster for the Yorkshire Schools Exploring Society going to the Sinai Desert. So I thought, well, I'd had this most amazing trip with lots of other disabled people. This was, of course, going to be exactly the same. And from the very outset, it was a very different experience, still wonderful, still incredible, but it taught me so many lessons. First of all, it was a much smaller cohort of people and I was the only disabled person on the trip. The Yorkshire Schools Exploring Society had been going for, I think, over 30 years at the time and had never had a disabled person on one of their trips. So I was oh, wow. a bit of a guinea pig, which I don't mind. I don't mind being if I, if I have to be. But, you know, from the very beginning, it was it was a very different experience. The second thing that happened was the female leader that was supposed to be going on the trip withdrew her application shortly after I'd submitted mine. So I then had a choice of, right, okay, do I withdraw from the trip or should my mum come with me? (laughs) (laughs) As an 18-year-old that was very bothered about her street cred, I wasn't really sure what I wanted, but my mum and I I had a chat about it and we agreed that she would go as a female leader and it was just the most amazing bonding experience that we'd had. But yeah, in terms of planning, in terms of figuring out the logistics of being a disabled person that was a really keen traveller, but also really needing to keep up with this non-disabled group of people was quite a hard pill to swallow, if I'm completely honest. We um, travelled through the Sinai Desert on camel, which was absolutely incredible. And then we learnt to scuba dive in the Red Sea just off the coast of Egypt. So both of those things quite physically taxing activities. And I'm really proud to say that I did both of them. But I vividly remember going back to either the hotel or the campsite every night and just getting really upset from being so exhausted. So I think this idea of how we balance our focus of our capabilities and limitations and whether that builds confidence and understanding or actually stops us from doing things is such a powerful thing to think and talk about as disabled people and that it definitely taught me that that trip amazing yeah and it's just yeah the life experience and then it's i guess you can take the negatives from things but to to be able to put yourself in the mindset of what what were the positives what did i bring away from this and i'm sure that um the the, the society that you went with have probably learned lessons themselves and hopefully will implement those lessons uh for future trips if they you know they can welcome more people that are wheelchair users on trips absolutely absolutely and if nothing else I have learned how to fashion a commode out of a plastic school chair very, very well. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> that will come in handy if you ever go to a music festival, I think, as well. Yeah. So, yeah, that's 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 for everyone, that. <laughs> Let's keep it inclusive. Uh, <laughs> but amazing. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, it's just incredible. And do you feel that that gave you more confidence or in, in your abilities as well because you pushed yourself through that? And do you think that, uh, more people should try and push themselves to experience those types of things as well, like not focus on the limitations, I guess. Yeah, that that's a really good question. I think if we're being completely honest, disability is still seen as pretty undesirable by society. You know, we're seen as 
a bit of a hindrance, a bit of a burden. And there's this binary, isn't there, of you're either superhuman and inspirational or you're a benefit scrounger and you can't contribute to society. And I think what travel in general has done for me is really teach me that, hey, disabled people, we're just people that want to get by, want to have good experiences, want to have equitable experiences to our non-disabled peers. And travel is something that has made me realise how privileged I am in so many other areas of my life, how I can use the qualities that I have to help others um, build empathy within myself, but help build empathy around disability as well. And yeah, it's helped me realise that I do have many capabilities and I do have flaws and limitations just like anybody else. And really what we should be aiming for is a middle ground between the two because we don't want pity, we don't want special treatment. And and really the only way to do that is to to normalise everything as much as possible. So yeah, I think yeah. it's been really powerful for me. Amazing. And it's just to keep things fair, because I think that a, a quote that I really love is that people, it, it, pe we or people are disabled by the environment. It's mm. not that you have a disability that's stopping you from, you could do things if the environment was made accessible to you. So um, yeah, it's just really powerful stuff. It really is. And it's, it's great to hear about. So thank mm. you for sharing that. No. Um, and I guess because this is more of a business podcast, um, I'm going to move back now into sort of your current role at MIMA. And um, would you mind letting me know about how your journey there began? Because um, I, I think you've mentioned that you weren't always working in an employed role. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, I started off in access consultancy, honestly, as a bit of a fluke. So um, finished university. Um, studied a master's degree in disability studies, which was all around the politics and policy of disability. It was fascinating learning about that theory and that all important history. And whilst this was going on, um, I had volunteered at the London 2012 Paralympic Games and um, been involved in the wheelchair fencing, which I knew nothing about. And I had to learn a lot about on the job, which was amazing. <laughs> And the British consulate then got in touch with me out in Rio de Janeiro, where they were having the next games in 2016 and um, invited me to go out there to talk a little bit about how NGOs, but also businesses could make themselves a little bit more accessible and inclusive ahead of the games where all of these tourists and athletes were going to be descending on the city. And I was giving a talk somewhere um, and there was a guy in the middle of the audience that at the end of my chat stood up and basically said, hi, I work for Metro Rio, the underground transport system in Rio de Janeiro, and we'd like to interview you for a job. We desperately need some accessibility help prior to the games because, of course, locals, tourists, athletes are going to be using our underground system to get there. Yeah. So I was very fortunate to get that role and spent the next two years on and off living and working in Rio and doing a little bit of work in the UK on the side. Um, and then after that and after the Games, came back to the UK and continued my accessibility consultancy, whether that was with disability awareness charities, whether it was with small to medium sized businesses who were maybe owned by families who really wanted to do 
some good stuff in terms of accessibility but didn't necessarily have the time or the budget to to go out to tender for example and things like yeah. that so that was really really amazing I absolutely loved it and then I ended up working at MIMA um, through a contact um, of, of mine Phil Nutley that, that works at MIMA as head of innovation we met each other in Rio and there was an oh, opening wow. and, and he, he invited me to, to go and speak to them so yeah that was that was just really a stroke of luck all around but it's been so fulfilling and enriching to work in such an important field and selfishly be better in the world for myself <laughs> at the same time um so that's been great and and at MIMA really the main things that we focus on is built environment accessibility where we support architectural or wider design teams on big master plan projects so I'm currently working with numerous airports museums and actually at a couple of global events as well um, we also do quite a lot of access auditing we also facilitate and recruit lived experience user groups which is amazing so getting people with different impairments and access requirements to talk about certain designs they often have quite opposing requirements and preferences so it's really really interesting to to work out that compromise and we've also started to deliver a fair bit of training around disability awareness as well so that's the bulk of of what we do <clears throat> amazing yeah so it's, it touches almost all areas really doesn't it it's, it's it's great and hearing you speak about what you're doing and i know that we've mentioned before that, that you still do work in the digital accessibility space and you're you're currently sort of gaining more as, as you go um but the the similarities between the two from me an outsider looking in are just humongous because like you're saying with with you employing user groups um for different user experience um to get their sort of any additional needs they may have or their mm -hmm. experience to to learn from that and i recently had an experience i've managed to go to the um google's um accessibility discovery center uh in london um, and the key th a key thing that that chris there said was that um you need to make accidents you need to you need to have mistakes to learn from them and then to grow and by putting your product in front of someone and saying break it that's the best way that you can do it yeah, and and nice. i suppose we're only going to learn from the from those sort of mistakes and things um and it's having the impetus having the awareness and then ability to put things right or at least try and help towards that so um and that's you know I'm, I'm from my perspective i'm thinking of an application or you know a, a yeah. watch or a, a you know a phone in general for google or a website but um you can you can really put that to anything um when it comes to barriers for people absolutely um, and that's the thing i mean so i kind of it brings me on to the next question which i've rephrased about 15 times <laughs> and i've got it here in front of me and it still doesn't make sense in my head um, but i just wanted to so um I, we spoke briefly about this before I started recording this episode and I don't like to put words in people's mouths I don't like to make people give give people an identity um but I wanted to get your opinion as someone with lived experience or someone mm -hmm. that is a wheelchair user um how do how do you think we can break down that barrier um between people that would 
consider themselves able-bodied uh, with no, they don't experience any accessibility barriers in their day-to-day -day life. How do you think that we can convey, this is what I'm experiencing, because it's, it, it's equally as hard to get into someone's head that is experiencing things everyone experiences life in a different way mm. so it's opening people's minds to this is how difficult it is for me to do this and it shouldn't be but here's a solution like how do we get people in that mindset yeah it's it's such a good and almost impossible question um you're welcome I think <laughs> <laughs> one of the most impactful things that I've ever learned is from a, a charity called en Enhance the UK Disability Awareness Charity that I used to work for and um, in their disability awareness training they say that disability is the most fluid minority that exists and the fact of the matter is that whether we like it or not each and every one of us will experience disability at some point in our lives, hopefully through age or injury. But hey, you never know what will happen. And that makes it scary for people. It yeah. makes people want to run away from it because who would want to face something that they know is going to happen to them? But I think the best way to think about it is to start thinking about instead of disabled and non-disabled people, disabled and not yet disabled people and if we can start changing that rhetoric in society hopefully hopefully we will get people with a little bit more intention and thought and care and interest in this field um i found from so many different people that i work with you know professionally or personally that once they start to really understand what we do as accessibility consultants whether physically socially digitally they really get excited about it and invested in it yeah um and you, you know you you may have stories of your own here but <laughs> i think what we need to do without putting too much duty and emotional labor on access consultants or disabled people is we need to try our best to open that world a little bit more because it's only by being curious and asking questions and seeing, you know, what might happen tomorrow or in the future that people are going to start getting interested, excited and invested in what we do. And I think that counts regardless of what sort of accessibility field you're in, what sort of impairment or access requirement you have. I think that's what we need to do. Definitely. And I've, I've said multiple times before in conversations on here or in person with people um, that it is, I think, entirely mindset driven. You need mm. to have that mindset, maybe the empathy. And, you know, I've oftentimes thought I'm, as a recruitment consultant in the space, I'm trying to think who are the types of people that would fit within this this field? And you know, a lot of people will say, well, empaths, you know, people with empathy and a lot of people that have experienced um, some form of disability or impairment tend to have more empathy for others because they've got their own experience mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. um, and some people would say male versus female divide, but I've not seen any evidence of, of stark difference at all uh, in my in my world anyway. But um, something that there's an amazing lady called uh, Helen Wilson, and she is doing an awful lot to push for 
um, education on accessibility and disability at mm -hmm. key stage two level in schools, primary oh, wow. education. And I think that that, I mean, it's such a wonderful idea to think, well, as soon as you open up children's minds to this, they will have had an experience, they would have learned a bit more. I mean, in, it's not in every classroom you have someone with a, an impairment or a disability mm -hmm. is there. So to so just have that as part of your syllabus, it's going to ingrain that. So as they go to uh, higher education, college, university, entering the world of work, they will have that mindset of, but if it doesn't work for me, it's not going to work for other people. But also thinking about, well, what could someone experience that, you know, how else can I design this? Yeah. So I just, yeah, what a great idea. That That's really cool. And I think the more that education happens, the less that fear factor surrounding disability is embedded. You know, I I go around the supermarket and a little child comes up to me and says, oh, you're, you're in a pram too, for example. They might say something like that. And the parents shoo them away and go, don't be rude. Like, that's an awful thing to say. Hush, hush. And it's not rude or awful at all. They're finding common ground with something that they know and they're wanting to talk to me about it. And that's beautiful and that's lovely. And Innocent, if they have, yeah. yeah, and if they have questions, I'm more than happy to answer them. And I think that fear that we get as we get older is so, so apparent when it comes to disability. So apparent. And as much as we can minimise and reverse that, the better yeah 100 percent. and to touch on something else you've said which i know that you've mentioned it was through uh is it enhance the uk um that is the most fluid um uh, sort of thing that's gonna uh, everyone will experience it mm. that also brings me on to the microsoft design toolkit yeah. which mentions temporary permanent situational barriers yeah. yeah so you know someone with a hearing impairment or who is deaf um or hard of hearing they have a permanent sort of um a barrier that they experience although if you get a hearing infection or you get tinnitus or something like that you're also a bit sensitive to sound yeah you know you might need to use uh captions on your phone because you can't bear having the noise on or you might be in a you might be a bartender and you can't currently hear what someone's ordering so it's better yeah. that they write it down so there's it is for everyone and I, I think that that's the divide that doesn't need to exist it's not able-bodied and disabled it's for it is genuinely if you create something with accessibility in mind it's good for everyone yeah absolutely right you're absolutely right you know I so often hear new parents in particular saying oh I've just had to go around London with uh, my my newborn baby in a pram and oh I get it now I really yeah. understand it and I get it now. You know, with that mm. temporary or situational quote unquote impairment of having a child in a buggy and having to navigate an environment that wasn't built for that, suddenly, yeah, okay, right, I, I understand it now and I'm an advocate and I'm an ally. And yeah, yeah. you know, that that's normally how it goes. I think it's just that awareness, isn't it? Just trying to, I and mean, hopefully we'll do that with this, but yeah. <laughs> and I'm just even just thinking that, like, yeah, well, I won't I won't park up on a curb because people need to get by like yeah, something as yeah, simple yeah. as that and it, yeah. you, you might make someone's day by creating space <laughs> totally amazing okay cool um and so yeah sorry to spin back again so your work's primarily within the sort of physical and social accessibility space but there is quite an invisible or thin line between uh the two 
with digital accessibility so we've already discussed that being that this is a podcast around digital mm. could you give us an insight so we've heard a lot of people's backgrounds what they're currently doing day to day on uh, digital accessibility space but I know you've mentioned you've done some work with global events or with museums is there anything that you can sort of let us know what was a typical day what were you sort of needing to do um, yeah Absolutely. And I think when it comes to digital accessibility, hands up immediately, I am not a digital access expert. I am very much learning. This is almost like the third pillar that I'm learning a little bit as I go. But the thing that's really important to us at MIMA and the thing that really, I guess, anchors my working day, whether I'm thinking about physical, social or digital access, is the end-to-end journey and the end-to-end experience for both customer and colleague. So, I'll give you a digital access example. Whilst I could never go into the back end of a website and make sure that it's accessible in terms of WCAG 2.1 or anything like that, level AA, (laughs) (laughs) um, what I do do a lot when thinking about that end-to-end journey and that end-to-end experience is think about, right, okay, I've got somebody here who I'm designing for. They're autistic and they might specifically need um, a quiet space within this museum that I'm working with. So I might want to think about how we can design that in physically. I might also want to look at uh, how the acoustics are working within this place to make sure that, you know, quiet areas are possible just within the communal areas, wherever possible. Lighting might also be a really big issue. Is there independence over dimming that, brightening it, etc.? What about the opening hours of the museum and whether or not they can provide some some quieter hours or some specific tours? What about the colour palette in the space? Can it be calming and neutral whilst also being contrasting enough for a blind or partially sighted person to be able to navigate the same space? So they're all they're all quite physical and social operational um, thoughts. But where digital access comes in for me is I think, right, okay, so this museum does offer um, specific uh, neurodiversity-friendly opening hours, for example. Right, that's great, but how are people going to know about that? There needs to be some kind of accessibility guide or some kind of advertising information available online to allow somebody to familiarise and pre-tool themselves with the space. Okay, right. They they might not still have the confidence to actually go to the museum and experience it within these hours. What else could we do? Maybe we could provide a 360 degree video tour of the space that would allow that person from their comfort of their own home to build that familiarity and confidence around visiting. If somebody's presenting in that video, we need to make sure that it's captioned for somebody who's deaf or has hearing loss. We might also want to provide some kind of transcript or audio description as well. So you can see how from a main focus in physical and operational accessibility, quite often my work does merge into the digital access space, but very much from a front end perspective, looking at that end to end experience. What will that visitor or colleague need to have in the digital space to make them utilize the physical space that's how i would say i work it 
Wow. Oh, it's just, yeah. And it's, yeah, as soon as you, everything just seems so familiar. And I'm sure that anyone that listens to this episode will go, oh, yeah, that's what I do. But just, <laughs> you know, with the HTML and CSS or YR, yeah. yeah. Um, Although it just goes straight over my head, does that bit. So I, I do need somebody with that wonderful technical expertise to teach me. <laughs> I'm sure that there's plenty of people out there and they, I'm sure there's plenty that would love to work with you as well. Um, but brilliant. And then so there's and I, obviously I've got a point because I, I always seem to ramble. Um, I spoke to another lady um, who was working for the Ministry of Justice and they were working on visual, uh, so like um, VR experiences for yep. people that need to attend court um, to familiarise themselves with the surroundings. So when they arrive at court, there's obviously tons and tons of pressure and stress, be, be it that you're being convicted or if you are a victim or you're in the jury you know you may have anxiety uh, going into those sorts of situations so to at least familiarize yourself ahead of time at least you've got that under the belt and then the other pressures of being in a courtroom you know the whole authority figure and stuff like that it freaks me out so I can understand so at least you can you know and what a great thing to think that's uh, amazing to, to put in place um just to you know if it's one less barrier then it's, mm. it's doing the right thing I think isn't it yeah yeah that's amazing and from quite a also from quite a socioeconomic class perspective that's really really interesting as well because the the legal justice system in general is is obviously known for being pretty elitist and uh, be I guess almost taking advantage of that technical knowledge that a lot of people don't have i i wouldn't have a clue of what to do if, if no, suddenly i was asked to go to court i wouldn't yeah. know what processes happen um and i think only a very select few do so from a kind of wider human nature human characteristics perspective that's really fascinating as well it yeah. benefits so much more than accessibility elements yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. And I think I'm now thinking, well, if you were if you were taken to court and because of the additional anxiety, because of the additional nerves, you don't represent yourself in the way you normally would have if you were being interviewed elsewhere, rather than having this big audience around you and the jury and the judge and, the, or, you know, it, it, it makes it a fairer trial. And that should be something that is considered globally, isn't it? So, so cool. So, so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and just daily, you wouldn't think about it until you're in that situation. You wouldn't, would you? So it's um yeah, just another another fascinating topic. Mm. <laughs> um so cool. I mean, I'm about to probably bore you and everyone else with a bunch of acronyms and <laughs> numbers and letters, and it's gonna do me wonders when I'm writing the captions and the transcript <laughs> later. Um but within digital accessibility, there are various guidelines or regulations and standards uh, to refer back to or that you may have to try and implement or you can use as collateral when people are asking you, but why? Why do we need to do this? Such as WCAG or the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines or WCAG, just because I hate myself, um, I, ISO 30,071 and 1 and uh, BS8878 or the extremely accessible EN301549 in Europe. Um, 
there's also Section 508 or the ADA in the US. So this is just going to be really fun later. Um, but I'd like to know a bit more about the sort of standards and, re and regulations in place for the physical or social side of accessibility. Um, I think that Craig Abbott in the last episode mentioned around the cognitive side of accessibility. Mm. There's more stuff being written by the W3C. Yes. Um, but on the physical side, is it like the Disability Act or is there, are there more regulations that we should be aware of? So um, legal, the legal side of things very much stems from the Equality Act 2010 um, that really um, imposes a public sector equality duty on businesses to foster good relations, to eliminate any kind of discrimination um, and advance equal opportunity. But you cannot say that you comply with the Equality Act because it's a rights-based act. It's not a standard. So when people say that, that's that's incorrect. Um, in terms of standards and legalities, you would then look to building regulations, approved document M, um, and that very much provides what I think most accessibility consultants would now consider quite a basic baseline in terms of built environment accessibility. But it very much still provides that collateral why, as you mentioned earlier, <laughs> which is still important, sadly. You know, still we're often the no people in the room that we have to we have to prove our reasoning. Um, in terms of good and better practice, you'd be then looking at BS 8300 parts one and two, looking at the external and the internal environments. Um, again, very much built environment, but provides very much a more aspirational best practice view on built environment accessibility than approved document M does. It's more updated and it's just that kind of level up. But very, very interestingly, and I don't know if the same is true with with digital access, but very much depending on the sector that you're working in is where that best practice lies. So if I'm working with a transport client or I'm looking to go to planning committee within something in the urban realm, I'd look at the Department for Transport's Inclusive Mobility document, for example, which was released last year and provides some really, really good um, level of, of built environment stuff specifically around the areas of mobility, parking, urban realm. There's an amazing um, new PAS that's just come out, a PAS 6463, which is all around neurodiversity and design for the mind. So you might again want to go into an airport, for example, and you've got all your built environment ideals and principles there, but you might just want to make some tweaks to Things like the colour palette, the lighting, the acoustics, to make sure it's more accessible for neurodivergent individuals. Um, there's also some really good standards coming out and work still being done around electric vehicle charging, because, as I'm sure you know, a lot of charges came out that were totally inaccessible. So there's yeah. quite a lot of retrofitting work being done at the moment. So, yeah, it really does depend on the sector that you're working in. And quite a lot of organisations are now bringing out their own built environment processes and policies, which is really cool too. Quite often the hardest thing is knowing which one to choose and which one almost trumps the other. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. And I guess <laughs> you're only going to know about those if you know about them or if you're yeah. looking for them, I suppose. So um, I've got, I'm thinking about a friend of mine. He's an interior architect or an interior designer. And... I'm wondering if he would have known about 
you know, if he has to consider these things, especially the like you say, the colour palette and things. I guess yeah. if you're being paid to design for a specific person and they're paying you up front, but if it's designing, you know, uh, government buildings or or public spaces, then there should be that in place. And I'm assuming yeah. that people that work in that area will be working towards those standards. But yeah. yeah, I think it is quite interesting. So in terms of what they would have to kind of look at and make sure they're aligned with, it would be your approved document. Um, it would be your, your fire regulations, for example. And I think you're absolutely right. It's often then a bit of a battle between the baseline and the aspirational or the shall and the should, if you like, you know, mm. yes, you you must do this, and you, we're gonna we're gonna tick these boxes for a lack of a better term. But how are we going to encourage that client, that design team, whatever it might be, to go up a few stages to look at the paths um, on designing for the mind and and really th start thinking about the nuances of this stuff because that's not in your building regs. So yeah, quite a lot of my job, a lot of the time is is pushing that aspiration wherever I can. And I'm sure it's the same in digital access as well. Yeah, I think to be honest, a lot of what I'm hearing about digital accessibility is that um, they are guidelines. The mm. things that they de mm. de depend upon are still known as guidelines. So when you're still trying at, at that stage of trying to get the buy-in from the decision makers in a business, to say yes okay we'll spend money on making this accessible for the additional 15% of the population or you know to ensure that there are people willing to spend the purple pound you yeah. know and and yeah. tap into that market if you if that's what tickles your fancy and it's you know it's purely money driven then great you know as long as it's being built accessible for everyone mm. um but it's it's and then the pushback is always but do we have to not always sorry I shouldn't say always but a lot of the time it's uh, is it how important is it we need to get this released we've got a deadline we've already spent x amount we need to get the app out there so people are using it we need some return on investment can we do it later and it's like yeah you can but it'll be 60 times more expensive mm -hmm. to put it right mm -hmm. so and you'll have pissed a lot of people off in the process <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely Exactly. And it's just and no one will return. You know, it's the re reputational risk as well. So there's a lot of argument for definitely. But then I just feel that there are certain times where people will just say, but it's not I'm not going to get sued. And, you know, I'm doing OK as it is. So why? And it's again building that empathy. And hopefully with the new generation of kids that are learning from Helen Wilson stuff, yeah, <laughs> it will be ingrained in everyone. <laughs> Amazing. Um, all good. And so obviously I'm a recruitment consultant. As you know, I may have tried to poach you in the past or tried to work <laughs> with you and Mima, um, but we'll leave that there. Um, but I wanted to know what your experience has been of, of job job hunting. Do you feel, do, is there a certain place you would go to look for work? I know that you've mentioned that you've had people approach you um, in, in, this, in this respect, but interview processes, is it quite, do you feel the obligation to make it apparent on your CV or profile that mm. you are a wheelchair user or should it entirely be the responsibility of the hirer to say we will make reasonable adjustments we just need to know what what you need where do how what's your experience been in, in that sort of space it's really really interesting that it's a great question and the only thing that's going mm -hmm. through my mind is I would do exactly the same thing as I used to do on my tinder profile <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> dating and job applications, similar, well, similar swipe, things. Swiping right. <laughs> and and really, that is to say that I feel very fortunate in a strange way that I have such a visible impairment because it makes it very easy to say, right, okay, I'm going to need accessible parking, please, step three access, and an accessible toilet, and then I'm grand. And I think the difficulty with disclosure still comes when people have non-visible impairments. There is a real lack of understanding, of empathy, of acceptance around that. These individuals are constantly having to justify what their requirements are and why. And there is very little done around providing appropriate reasonable adjustments, whether that's at the interview process or in terms of progress and retainment and um, what what's the word? Promotion. Promotion <laughs> I don't yeah. know why I didn't get that. Um, <laughs> I think that's often the real difficulty. And I feel very fortunate that I've not had to have that experience because I've got many friends that have and it's not pleasant constantly feeling like you've got to justify things and ask for things. So I do absolutely think that in many ways, the onus is on the employer to state that, you know, they actively encourage applications from lots of different people with different protected characteristics. But it's about making sure that that process in itself is accessible. It's stress free whether you are holding an interview in person or online, have you made sure that that environment, that platform is accessible and caters to the requirements of your interviewee? And quite a lot of the time, it sounds so common sense and so simple, but that's because it is. It's about asking rather than assuming. It's about having the confidence to email someone and, and go, right, okay, is there anything that you need from me? And I think if we normalised that, regardless of who the person is, what they've put on their profile, be it Tinder or a job application, <laughs> if we normalise that and we asked everybody if they had any kind of accessibility requirements, if there's any adjustments that we can make, actually this strange thing about how do we encourage disclosure would pretty much disappear because you are giving people the platform to share with you what they require and you're encouraging it in a positive way that makes them feel comfortable like there won't be any negative repercussions if they do so yeah make it commonplace and standard practice and i think it yeah. is it's just you're not offending anyone by asking but i think that there is that fear that we mentioned earlier that even just by asking, you may offend. And that's the last thing most people want to do. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, recruitment is such a humongous business and there's a lot of people that do it a certain way and and, and sometimes what I would call the wrong way. And it is just, that oh, you've got keywords on your CV, I'll send the CV out, you should be great. And then the rest is up to you. And that's just not how it should be done, but unfortunately yeah. it happens quite a lot of the time. And I was assuming then, because I know when we first met, it was on a video call, and it was only when you mentioned, oh, I'm a wheelchair user, ah. that I went, are you? So if <laughs> if if you if I were if I were hiring you and interviewing you and hadn't thought of asking you, but every every interview was video call, um, and then at the end of the process, I've offered you the job. I'm like, oh, cool. So we're based on the 23rd floor, yeah. and there's no there's no lift access. Yeah, um, yeah. We meet three times a week in London. You'd go ah. I wish you would have mentioned that at the beginning, which yeah, yeah. again is the onus on the employer. Um, 
but then they should have just asked. They should have asked at the beginning. So yeah, no, brilliant. Okay. Um, I'll definitely bear that in mind. And we do, so we have a diversity, equity and inclusion statement. We make sure we put that at the bottom of every single job spec that we nice. write and, and advertise. So obviously we want to advertise to everyone. Everyone is absolutely welcome to apply. Um, and we do have sort of set questions that we have to ask. Um, and that, the awkwardness also includes, do you have any unspent criminal convictions? You know, it's still something we need to ask, but it's still... Someone might think, why are you making that assumption? But if it's common practice and every recruitment consultant asks that question, there's no need to get offended. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's one of those things. Hopefully we'll change yeah, the world after this one episode. <laughs> 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 um, but cool. Um, so, I mean, it's been amazing. I just, so final thoughts at the minute. So if there's anything that you want to share, anything of importance to you, anything you'll be doing coming up or any events that you might be going to, um, then feel free to let everyone know. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I have a couple of really, really cool engagements coming up, specifically looking at the accessibility of air travel. A few events that I've been invited to and also a few boards that I'm that I'm on. So that's going to be quite exciting looking at that from a passenger perspective, also with my consultancy head on as well. So I'm quite excited to see where, where that goes. Um, aside from that, I'm just trucking on, in all honesty. Um, <laughs> we're very busy, very, very thrilled and, and very grateful to be so. So if anybody is interested in, in chatting to me, either from a client perspective or from somebody who's who's interested in access consultancy and would love to learn more, I would absolutely be, be over the moon to chat with you. Oh, amazing. And I'm sure that there'll be people chomping at the bit to speak to you because you're such a nice person to chat with. So, oh, And I've really, I've, I've always, always loved chatting with you and I'm glad that we've had managed to, to do this today as well. Um, so thank you. But um, and, oh. and a part of the outro for each episode, I like to share a quote that might help inspire. Hopefully we've got plenty of quotes that you've made today uh, that'll inspire people but just so that it's not all doom and gloom and uh, Marcus Osterberg is um, the author of web strategy for everyone um, and he has written in there when speaking of disabilities the blind need the blind and their needs are most often used as an example and it's deceiving deceivingly simplistic since accessibility is something most of the population can benefit from mm. which i think leans back to the microsoft design principles Absolutely. of situational so but yeah all good that's um, really nice awesome thank you so much again um really love chatting with you um i'm sure everyone else is going to love listening to this as oh, well thank you um, Thanks for the incredible work that you're doing at MIMA and beyond. And um, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up and chat again very soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me on. It's been a real pleasure. No problem at all. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Take care. Thanks, Joe. Thanks once more to Emily for all her insight and sharing her experiences with me today. Just a reminder that PCR Digital are sponsoring Accessibility Scotland, which takes place on Friday the 8th of September 2023, and I'll be there, so I'd love to meet as many of you as possible. Hope you enjoyed the episode today, and I'll catch you on the next one.